You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have about Him. Well, good morning, everybody. Turn your Bibles with me to Psalm 84. That's where we're at, just as Adam has read for you. We are in a series studying the book of Psalms entitled The Songs of the Messiah, where we are um, looking for Jesus, our Messiah, through each of these songs that we go through. Um, you know, I don't know if, if uh, you have anyone in your life who you know, who you've known for some time, who's a believer, and they just walk with God. And it's not about how happy they are. It's not about um, emotions. This person who walks with God is just content. They're faithful. They persevere. Their circumstances don't dictate their attitude. Their circumstances, uh, suffering, conflict, whatever it may be, those kinds of things don't uh, corrode away their joy in Christ. A person who walks with Jesus just simply just does that. They take one step at a time forward, hand in hand with Jesus through life, and they're stable, and they're unshakable, and they're constant. That kind of person is unusual. That kind of person's pretty um, exceptional, would we say, right? Well, here in Psalm 84, I think we have um, the secret to how to become that person. How do we become that person who walks with God, who walks with God like that, whose circumstances and sufferings don't determine their happiness? whose happiness is not a situational thing, but whose happiness and joy and state of being is just determined by walking with God. That's what Psalm 84 is about today. And so we have four points we're going through, okay? I'm going to get right into them because we have a lot to cover today. First, we're going to see the longing for the nearness of God. Secondly, the predictability of God's nearness, the guarantee of God's nearness, and the reward of God's nearness. I'll say it again. This is the overview. The longing for God's nearness, predictability of God's nearness, the guarantee of God's nearness, and the reward of God's nearness. And I hope that we, by the end of today, can take one more step into becoming those kinds of people who just walk well with God. Let's go ahead and pray first, though. Father, we come to you and we... uh, we declare in this prayer the same thing that we have just sung, that your presence is better than anything. A day in your courts, Father, is better than a thousand elsewhere. It's what our hearts cry out for. It's what we sing for. It's what we desperately crave. God, we want to be with you where you are. Where you are, God, <laughs> that is the good life. That is the life worth living. That is where vitality and joy and flourishing come from, nearness with you. And so, God, I pray that you draw us near to you, that you would inspire us, compel us by your spirit, through your truth, to draw us deeper into relationship with you. God, it's all about you. You are glorious. That's that's the very reason why being with you is so amazing in the first place, is because you are awesome all glorious and all around the world in the last 24 hours and in the next hours, God, people are gathering, your people are gathering to worship you, to declare that your name is above every other name. And so we pray now, God, that your name would be exalted, 
that you be glorified. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world, especially for those who are hurting and are persecuted and going through it right now. I think of especially uh, those in Ukraine right now. I pray, God, that you would comfort them and that you would empower them, God, to endure the difficulty that is before them. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Psalm 84 first. Let's go ahead and establish that each and every single one of us in here and every single out person outside of this building longs for God, his nearness. We all do. Go ahead with me to verses one and two. It says this, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now, the sons of Korah wrote this psalm. Uh, it's not David here. This is like uh, a group of worship leaders in the temple in Israel at this time, and they wrote this song. And they use pretty strong language, if, if you noticed. They say, my soul longs, faints, how lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord. So they're using some pretty strong language to describe this anticipation that they have for fellowship with God. That, that their anticipation for fellowship with God, they're describing in such strong terms. And certainly one conclusion that we can make from this is how great God's presence is. Yes, obviously, God's presence is incredible. But I think here's another conclusion that we can come to based on these two verses. It is very natural. It is very instinctual to long, to long for, faint for God's presence. We all want that. It's all written on our heart. It's written on our heart. And verse 3 seems to reinforce that. Go with me, with me to verse 3. It says this, Even the sparrow, a bird, finds a home, and a swallow finds a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. So it seems like to solidify, to really uh, um, make concrete the fact that all of us long for God instinctually, he says, look at the birds, like look at just birds. They find their dwelling with you in your nearness, in your presence, in your temple, God. If the birds have a home with you in your presence, God, then so certainly won't I. Like if, it's, if, if they have one, isn't it just a natural conclusion to think that I can find a home with you? So the point is, we all, all of us have this longing for God's nearness. It's been embedded within us. It's been instilled within us. We have an instinctual longing for the divine. Now, my job is to prove that to you right now, to prove that to you that that is the case, because these are all just, it might, might just seem like cliches to you. Yeah, we have it written on our hearts. Like, is that true? Can we really see that suggested in reality? And I think so. So let me start by asking, we're going to just talk about how we know that this is true, that all of us have this written on our hearts. Let me start by asking you a question to think about to yourself. Don't answer out loud, because that'd be weird. Okay. In, in all of history, in, in all of history, in the entire globe, all humanity and all history, is there one um, uh, single unifying reality that, that, is, that emerges between all history and, and all, through all the globe? Is there one thing that we all have in common? There is, and it's this. Everywhere you go in history, every people group you go in history, every culture you go in history, Everybody worships. Everybody worships. They don't necessarily worship the God of the Bible, but everybody can't help but worship. And that's just a fact of reality. Now, 
Some of you here, or you might know someone who's a modern intellect. Okay, if you're a modern person, you say to yourself, yes, but we've evolved past that. Yes, but we've progressed beyond that. Religion, spirituality, worship, that's for people who, who that's archaic. That's traditional. We've, we've moved beyond that now. We have science. We have uh, psychology. We know better by now. We're so sophisticated. Well, let me tell you, for all your facts and all your science and all your arguments, you modern person who don't believe in any sort of spirituality or religion, you still worship. You do. Let me read to you a quote from uh, uh, an author who died a while ago, but his name is David Foster Wallace, not a Christian, uh, probably a religious person, vaguely. But here's what he says, and listen to this, this is interesting. He says this, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. He says the only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel that you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. There's a lot there we could, we, could, uh, we could dive into, but the point is this. You don't have to be religious to worship. Because what is worship? It's what you go to to tap real meaning in life. So everybody has that. Everybody has a source that they tap into for real meaning in life. They dedicate their time, their energy, their mental thoughts, it, it, their whole capacities, their whole being is invested in that thing you're worshiping. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Creatures are, bo- are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, then the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. All of us worship, we can't help it. All of us long for something beyond this place, for something transcendent. Now listen, if you're a modern person who believes in progress and science and facts, look, surprise, I cannot uh, convince you and persuade you with conclusive uh, uh, clear-cut arguments that God exists. That doesn't, that, that doesn't exist. There is no argument that proves conclusively that God exists. But listen, you have no argument either that he doesn't. All that we have to go off of is what seems to be suggested, what seems to be the case, what is just self-evident. That's really, at the end of the day, what we have to go off of. And here's the thing you have to grapple with. I think you're smart. I think the average human has great aptitude. I'm not saying that you're not intelligent if you're a modern person, but here's what I am saying. Here's what I want to propose to you, that you, if, if you don't believe in God, yet you worship, you are committing intellectual dishonesty, in intellectual lack of integrity. 
because you say God doesn't exist, even though there's all these things that suggest that he does, namely your inability to stop worshiping. All of us worship. And so I think it's true. I think we do have a longing for God's nearness. Very quickly, there's also postmodern people in here who will say, yes, spirituality, good. Yes, God, good. You know, yes, this cosmic force of love that all religions point to. You know, every religion is just downstream from the Great Lake. That is God. That is the, the, the love force of the universe. Well, listen, let me tell you that that position, which many hold today, it will never work for you. It will never work in, in reality, practically. Here's why. Because that God, that cosmic force of love, this just generic, plain, vanilla God that you've made or that you worship, that you subscribe to, is not actually divine, is not transcendent at all. And here's why. That God always agrees with you. That God will never, ever, ever contradict you. That God can be adjusted and updated as you update, as you change. Really what I'm saying is that cosmic force of love that most people believe in, it's just a projection of you. It's a God that mirrors you. That's why he always or she always or it always agrees with you and never contradicts you. If your God never offends you or scandalizes you or upsets you, you don't have an actual relationship. You have enablement. You've created a system of thought that just gets behind everything you're doing. And so I'm telling you that that form of worship, it will never actually satisfy that longing for nearness because you're not tapping into anything bigger than yourself. You're tapping into a God just as big as you. So we absolutely long for the transcendent. We long for the divine. It's an inescapable pull. It's an inescapable reality. But listen, in unbelief, you still try to realize that longing. In vague spirituality, you will never realize that longing. But in the Christian faith, walking with God, you can begin to and then increasingly realize this reality that we long for the nearness of God. So that's what the sons of Korah are describing now. From here on out, they're describing what it's like to walk with God. What is it like to, to, tap, to have that longing realized and to, and to have that work out in real life? So the first idea we're going to see here, okay, here's what God's offering us, is the predictability of God's nearness, the predictability of God's nearness. You'll see what I mean as we get into it. So go with me to verses 4 through 7. Now, what the sons of, of Korah are describing here is the pilgrimage that Israelites would make to the temple multiple times a year. So I'm just going to give that to you as you can understand what he's writing here. This is talking about the pilgrimage. In verses 4 through 7, it says this, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. And whose heart are the highways to Zion. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God. That is describing, in poetic terms, in exaggerated terms, this pilgrimage that uh, families would make to Jerusalem three times a year. I'm going to go ahead and read that passage to you from Deuteronomy so you'd know exactly what the sons are talking about. It says this in Deuteronomy 16. They'll be behind me. It says this, 
Three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, which is, of course, Jerusalem at the temple. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Booze, the three celebrations a year they'd go to Jerusalem for. He says, they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. So that's what Asaph, uh, sons of Korah are talking about. That pilgrimage going multiple times a year to Jerusalem. But the interesting thing about this pil- the, the way he's describing this pilgrimage is where he begins in verse 4. Did you notice that? Where does this journey, and, and at least in their perspective, begin? It begins at the conclusion. The journey begins at the destination, the temple. It says in verse 4, the very first line, uh, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise. So there we go. That's where the journey starts in their minds, in the temple, at the destination. So they start in the temple, and then what he does as he rehearses this pilgrimage is he now jumps back to like the next day that they're, at, they're back at their house, awaiting the next time to go to Jerusalem. So he starts at the end, then goes back to the beginning and then all the way through, like a, a cycle. That's what he's doing here in, these, in verses 4 through 7. So look again at verse 5, first line, blessed are those whose strength is in you. I think what the sons are picturing there is, hey, we've just had this spiritual high. We've connected with God. We've had this encounter with God. We've been in the temple. Now we're back home and we're feeling great because we're just we're fresh off of that. But look at the next line. It says, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. So time has passed, but they're still longing. They're still desiring. They're still excited. They're on that spiritual high. They're riding that spiritual high out. But then look, verse 6, as they go through the valley of Baca. So it seems like as time goes on, that spiritual high starts to dissipate. As time goes on, the passion dies. The excitement dies because real life is now hitting. They're going through the valley now through the valley of Baca, which in Hebrew literally means tears. They're going through the valley of tears. This is what it's like to walk with God. It starts high. It's exciting. There's passion. We go back to the real world, and it lasts for a little bit, but then slowly but surely, life happens. We go through the valley. We go through the valley of tears. If you were to, if you were to uh, uh, picture it like a, a film sequence, the first scene is we're in the temple, we're excited, it's going great. The next scene, we return home, uh, high off of that spiritual high. The next scene, life happens, we suffer, we get bad news, we experience disappointment, we experience loss, whatever it may be. Like life happens, we go through the valley of tears. But that's not the conclusion. That's not the conclusion to the film, if you will. That's not the conclusion to the pilgrimage that the sons of Korah are describing. If you keep going through verse 6, what happens? It says they make it a place of springs. They make the valley of tears a place of springs. It says they make it a place, oh sorry, it says in the third line, uh, the early rain also covers it with pools. That's the conclusion. That's the conclusion. That this valley of tears is overcome. It's triumph somehow. So the question is, how? Like, how? How do we make it through life when the spiritual high dies, when the excitement and passion leaves? What do we do then? Do we freak out? Should we despair and let our doubts win and triumph us? Should we become deflated when we stop feeling God, when the emotions are lost? What do we do then? Do we freak out? No. We, we somehow make it the Valley of Tears springs. We somehow 
have early rain come and make it pools. So the question is how? How do we do that? How do we do that? Go with me to verse 6 and analyze it. It says, they make it a place of springs. Meaning, here's what I think. We rejoice even when we don't feel like rejoicing. We give thanks even when we don't feel thankful. We sing even when we don't feel like singing. When we are in the valley, we don't respond to the valley. We transform our valley into a spring because of something else that we're responding to. So what are we responding to? If we're not responding to the valley, what are we responding to? The next line in verse 6 tells us. It says, the early rain also covers its pools. The question we have to ask here is, what the heck does this mean? (laughs) This is poetry, it's metaphor. So what's the metaphor here trying to communicate? So rain, rain symbolizes, if you will, uh, life, growth, even fertility, vitality, okay? So we're talking about some sort of life, and it says it's early rain. It's coming before expected. So, so what is that supposed to mean? Here's what I think it means. That the forthcoming, listen here, don't miss this, the forthcoming encounter with God at the temple for them, for us in life, the forthcoming encounter with God that we are anticipating, that we are looking forward to. We're in the valley now. We don't feel like it. The passion's gone. But what is to come, what's ahead of us, that is so real to us, so powerful to us, so anticipated by us that we begin to live according to it right now, already in the Valley of Tears. And that's what transforms it into pools and springs. We keep going, even when we don't feel like it, and we forbid, we forbid our attitude from being commanded by our emotions and by our circumstances, and instead we allow our attitude to be commanded by what we know about God through previous experiences that verify what our next experience will be. We don't let the valley determine our response. We let what we know about God historically project into the future and give us confidence for what is to come next. That is what determines our attitude, not the valley, but what is to come based upon what has happened, what has been. And that's what the sons mean when they say in verse 6 that we, or verse 7, that we go from strength to strength. We start at strength on a spiritual high, we go through a lull, but we end at strength. Where we persevere, we are carried because of what we know about God that tells us what is going to happen. That is what determines our perseverance. Look, much of the Christian, listen, please listen to this, it's so important. Much of the Christian life is faithfulness in the meantime. Much of the Christian life is faithfulness in the meantime. When you don't feel like it, when, you, when, you don't have, when you're not inspired, when the passion has dried up, much of the Christian life is being faithful through that and waiting for God to bring about the rain and to bring about the springs, waiting for God to... to, to um, set our hearts on fire again. That, like that, that um, connection, that, that surge of excitement with God, like that's, 
pretty much out of our control. God does that in His timing and as the stars align. And so what we do is we wait. We be faithful. We persevere in the meantime until God sets our hearts on fire again. But we don't let our doubts and our emotions and, and our, our, our lack of passion and, and excitement dictate our joy and our attitude. And whether or not we put one foot in front of the other, we let what we know about God do that. So what the sons of Korah here are describing this, this pattern in life. There is, what I'm trying to say is there's a predictability to life. You go from strength to strength, but don't be surprised when there's a lull. That's very common, and that's okay. Don't freak out, just keep going. We long for God's nearness, but listen, there's a predictability to that. And so when you feel like you've lost it, when you feel disconnected, just keep going. Because just like it has happened before, it will happen again. Just keep going. And please listen to me. I don't want you to be discouraged when you experience that lull. Look, emotions do not dictate your spiritual maturity. How you feel about God does not dictate how spiritually healthy you are. Not necessarily. Do you know what dictates, what defines whether or not you're spiritually healthy and spiritually mature? Faithfulness. Faithfulness. Remaining constant even when you don't feel like it. Obeying when you don't feel like it. Singing when you don't feel like it. Trusting when you don't feel like it. Moving from strength to strength even when you don't feel like it. That is authentic Christianity. That is mature Christianity. That's the real thing. So there's this predictability. Don't freak out. (laughs) It's going to be okay. What has happened will come again. Okay? So keep going. But there's another reassurance that uh, the sons here give us that it'll be okay, that we're going to make it. And it's what they write next in verse 8. Look at verse 8. They say, O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Now here's what's confusing. Just a moment ago, the sons were telling us to persevere because we'll experience that renewal again. We'll experience that connection again. Just give it time. Just keep going. Just persevere. But now all of a sudden they cry out, God, hear us. God, bring it. God, make it so. Please make it happen. And the question I have is what gives? Like, uh, you're telling us on one hand to keep going, but now it seems like you're hopeless. Like you need God to intervene. Like that's not enough. Like the, predict- the predictable pattern, it's not enough. And all of a sudden they're crying out for God to do it. What's happening here? What, why are they doing that? Here's why, why they're doing this. Because this is realistic. <laughs> because regardless of what I've just said, which is good and helpful, put it in your back pocket, but regardless of what we know to be true, that God will bring about renewal again, that it's going to be okay, regardless of those things, regardless of what anyone else says to reassure us, we still end up believing at times that each valley is different than the previous one and that this valley is going to do it, <laughs> that this valley is going to sink me, that this valley is going to do me in. Somehow, we, you know, it takes so much to excite us and get us passionate about Jesus. It takes so very little to make us despair. And we have such short memories. We think that this valley is, is again, just worse than the rest and there's no recovering 
What I'm saying is we need something even more than that predictability. That's good, but we need, a, we need a guarantee that no matter what, we will have God's nearness, that we will have his presence, that we will have the very source of life walking with us every step of the way. We need a guarantee. That's why they're praying, God, hear us. God, do this. The question is, though, what is the basis of our confidence as we pray this? Like, as we're praying to God, as they're praying to God, God, do this, God, bring it about, God, make it so. What, what, what is our confidence in that prayer? Is it me? Is it my performance that somehow God's going to look at me and all I'm doing is going to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to go ahead and make it all right. I'm going to go ahead and make you feel better. I'm going to go ahead and make those stars align so you know I am with you. Is, the, is, is our confidence, is the basis of our confidence our performance? Because listen, if that was the case, I would never have any confidence. And you would never have any confidence that it's going to be okay. Both in regards to, to how I relate to God and then how I think about myself. Like, listen to this. God is love. God is love. And what I'm going to surprise you, and what I'm going to say next might surprise you because I just said that. Because God is love, when he looks at my performance... And all of the times I've turned a blind eye to sin and destruction, <laughs> all the times that I have silently enabled it or even participated in it, I and you, you know what we are guilty of? Sin, which means, <laughs> which means, which means we are guilty of contributing to the unraveling of ourselves, unraveling of others, unraveling of society. We have unraveled God's good creation. And it is precisely because God is love that he opposes us. You get that? God is moved to fierce wrath, fierce anger towards us because we have opposed that which is perfect and good and because we have opposed that which he intends for others and their good. So listen, if I think my performance is somehow going to make God hear my prayer and make it all okay, it's not. That's not how it works. It can't be that. And listen, let's be honest. If it was my performance, like my consistency, my perseverance that gave me confidence that God's going to hear me and make it okay, I got none of that because I am far too fickle. I am way too inconsistent. I am, I am not faithful to God. I am not. And so if, if I'm looking at me as the basis of my confidence, I have no basis of confidence that God's going to hear me out, that, God, that God's going to do what I want. Because <laughs> I would feel too ashamed and too guilty to keep approaching God and asking for his nearness over and over, over and over, because I cannot keep at my end of the bargain. I would feel unclean. So listen, here, listen to me. We need something that can stand as a promised timeless, unmerited memorial that testifies to the fact that I and you are forgiven, that I and you are innocent. We need a memorial that stands as a remembrance for the fact that we have been made clean, that our performance is not taken into consideration when God hears our prayer. We need a memorial that will do just that so that God can draw near to us without compromise, and so we can draw near to him with confidence. So look at verse 9. Here's the basis of their confidence. Here's the basis of our confidence. Behold our shield, O God. 
look on the face of your anointed. Interesting here. What are the sons of Korah, where do they place their confidence? It's not in themselves, it's in the king. That's who the anointed is. The king of Israel. They say, look to the king of Israel, God, and regard him, his performance, his consistency, if you, if you need a reference to answer our prayers. Now remember, remember, the king of Israel is supposed to be the ideal human. He's supposed to stand before Israel and embody the law. He was supposed to be righteous and faithful. Uh, he was supposed to uh, embody their hopes and dreams. He was to stand as their representative. His, his perfection was their perfection. His success was their success. So they say, regard the king, regard the king. That's the basis of their confidence. John Bunyan was an 18th century uh, pastor in England. And before he became a Christian, he was uh, vile, like absolutely vile, worse than any of us in terms of a resume of sin. He becomes a Christian. He becomes a pastor. And even still, years into pastoring and preaching, he struggled with whether or not he was saved, like assurance of salvation, whether or not he was really um, in or not. But then he had a breakthrough. Let me read to you what he wrote down. Here's what he says about this breakthrough, where he transitioned from doubt to assurance that he was actually clean and forgiven, that actually it was not about his performance. He says this, But one day, as I was passing in the field, and that too with some dashes on my conscience, meaning his conscience was pricked, remembering all the things he had ever done and said that were um, condemning, he says, fearing that not was all that all was not right. Suddenly this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I thought I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There I say, as my righteousness. There's our memorial. That's what commemorates our innocence and the fact that we are forgiven. That's not a performance. He continues. So that wherever I was or whatever I was doing, my God could never say of me, he needs my righteousness for it is always before him. I also saw that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same Yesterday, today, forever, past, present, future, Jesus stands as our innocence. He's our argument. Like, do I have confidence in myself? No, but I have all the confidence in Jesus. His performance is clean. His resume is clean. His track record is perfect. He is at the right hand of God right now, constantly acknowledged as our blamelessness. And so, when you don't feel like it, when you're in the valley of tears, do you have a guarantee that it's going to be okay, even more than just the predictability of, of how these things go, the cycle of walking with God? Do we have something more than that? Yes, we have, we have evidence that we are forgiven always before God the Father's eyes. That means this, God's nearness is always with you, always with you, every step Throughout life, nothing you do, better or worse, will ever, ever change that. 
because it's promised, guaranteed in the memorial who is our risen, perfect Savior. So when your forgetfulness causes you despair, to despair, when your guilt overwhelms you, you can't believe that you're going to have renewal, that it's going to be okay, that you're going to experience the nearness of God again. We have an everlasting memorial that tells us God is near now and always, even when we don't feel like it. So in our walk with God, okay, in our walk with God, there's a predictability that should give us some assurance that's going to be okay. But even more than that, we have a guarantee that Jesus, Jesus is our, is our evidence that it's going to be okay. We will always have God's nearness. And if you, listen, if you embrace that and believe that and take the step forward and keep walking with Jesus, you will not regret it. Oh my goodness, you will not regret it. Because lastly, there's a reward. There's a great reward to having the nearness of God in your life. Look at verse 10. The sons say, for a day in their courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. A day, one singular day is better than a thousand, which is like infinity in the Hebrew. Like a thousand just means ever indefinite, infinite, infinite, eternal. One day with God's nearness is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now listen, in the last 80 years, we as um, humanity, definitely in the West, have had uh, the unique experience of being able to have a global awareness. We can travel anywhere we want on the globe at any given time in the last 80 years. That means we know some pretty incredible places, some pretty incredible food, culture, people, scenery, landscapes. Like we can see breathtaking, amazing places and experience it firsthand for ourselves. And so what a statement. One day in God's courts is better than an infinite number of days in the coolest of places you can ever imagine or ever see firsthand. Why? <laughs> Why would they say that? Look at verse 10 to keep going. I'm not giving the answer yet. I'm escalating it a little bit more here, intensifying it. He says, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Think about that. That's an incredible statement. I'd rather be the, on the lowest rung, the lowest rung in the temple, like the grunt work in the temple, than have the most lavish, comfortable, secure, on and on and on lifestyle that lacked integrity. I'd rather be the lowest rung than have everything. Why? Why one day than a thousand elsewhere? Why lowest rung than everything? Why? It's because of the reward that comes with walking with Jesus in life. Specifically, three rewards. Are you ready? We're going to do them quickly because I know you guys are getting tired. Three rewards. His love, his approval, and his protection. That's what Jesus has for you. If you walk with him, that's what he wants you to experience. His love, his approval, and his protection. Look at verse 11. He says, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord God is a sun and a shield. Now that should cause you to like pause for a moment because you remember just a few verses ago, he said that the king was their shield. Same word in Hebrew. So how is it that God is their shield and the king is the shield and they're both the same thing? What's, what's going on here? And the only natural conclusion we can come to is they're one and the same. This is exclusive to Christianity that our God that we worship has become human. The king, 
God has wrapped himself in flesh and come to us. The light has broken into the darkness. He knows our suffering firsthand. He knows our limitations firsthand. He knows our difficulty firsthand. Now think about this. That is the God you worship, not some aloof, distant, unrelatable God, but a God who knows exactly, even more than you can even imagine what you're dealing with and going through. That's who you're walking with. And the most incredible, life-giving relationships in our life, whether it be spouses or whether it be friends, family, the most incredible, the best relationships in our life are when the person we're walking with is completely, has completely opened their heart to us. They're completely transparent and vulnerable and accessible. And not only that, they have sympathy, patience, understanding, and solidarity because they know what it's like to be you. They offer you the and they won't enable you, though. They, won't, they love you too much to leave you where you're at to just let you flounder and let you wallow. They want to transform you by that patience and love and connection. They don't want to use that connection to enable you. They want to use that connection to transform you. That is the most amazing relationships we have in our life. That's what you should be aiming for in friendship and in dating and in marriage, that kind of relationship. But no matter what relationship we have in our life, we'll never come close to to the relationship God is offering us because He is both God and King. (laughs) He is both God and man. He knows your suffering. He knows your weakness. He knows your limitations. He he gives you solidarity. He knows, but He's also God, so He has authority. He's not going to enable you, but He also has the power to hold the line and change you and transform you and cause you to flourish according to His will. That, friends, is love, true love. Not weak, uh, cliche love, but real love, a love that transforms. That's what God is offering you because he alone became man, because he alone is God and king. That's the reward of walking with God is that kind of relationship, love, a love relationship, but also his approval. Keep going in verse 11. It says, the Lord, think about this, the Lord bestows favor and honor The Lord, Yahweh himself, looks at you and he gives you his approval, favor and honor. He commends you because of, in Christ. Because when he looks at you, if you're in Christ, Christ, he sees you as the very righteousness of his own son, so he delights in you. He loves you. He he celebrates you. The best line in uh, the Lord of the Rings is the praise, listen to this, the praise of of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Think about that. The praise of the praiseworthy is above all rewards. Meaning when somebody incredible, when somebody who you think is just unbelievable believes in you, holds you in, when someone you hold in high esteem holds you in high esteem, oh, that is one of the most profound experiences at a heart level you will ever know. Yahweh himself, who breathed stars into existence, who defines what perfection and beauty is, thinks you are beautiful, thinks you are perfect, thinks you are delightful. 
He bestows favor and honor. If Friends, if that doesn't get in your heart and cause you to keep walking forward through the valley, I don't know what will. He celebrates you no matter what. He celebrates you no matter what. That's, what the, go- that's the good news of the gospel. You are cloaked in the royal robes of the king, and so he delights in you. The unbelievable one delights in you. You have his approval. And lastly, you have his protection. Look at verse 11, last line says, No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Now you might read this and think, oh great. All I got to do is walk with God and experience his nearness and I'll get every good thing I want. Every, you know, every, uh, I'll be taken care of, whatever. That's not what it means. It's not what it means. That's not the right way to read it. Listen, I don't want you to miss this because this is really important. The, the, the no good thing that, that God is giving us as we walk with him is not as we define it. It is as he defines it. Because here's the real truth. The good thing that you and I want will often destroy us when we don't know it. Because we can't see, we can see one or two steps ahead of us. We can't see to the nth degree. We can't see 10 steps where this thing's ultimately going to lead us and ultimately how, what it's going to do to us. The thing that you want so badly that God's not giving you and you get mad at him for it, it's for your protection. He's trying to give you not the good thing you want that's going to eat you alive, but the good thing he wants for you that's going to protect you and make you flourish and safeguard you and cause you to become more like his very own son. No good thing does he withhold on his terms, not yours, and is for our good. Listen, um, being a father has allowed me just a little keyhole peek into this reality. No good thing does he withhold. Because listen, Harper, my daughter, she wants to play with like kitchen knives, okay? And I'll take it for, I'll, I'll stop it, I won't let her do it, and she will just wail and cry and pout and whine about all the things I'm trying to protect her from. Because she doesn't know what I know. She does not know what I know. <laughs> Imagine that on an infinite scale with us and God. I want this job. I want a romantic relationship. I want perfect health. Like all good things, not even bad things. But he doesn't give it to you. Why? Because you don't know what he knows. You don't know it. It's an infinitely larger scale. He is protecting you from yourself so he can give you something better, himself. So listen, just trust the process. If you don't feel God, if you don't feel close to him these days, it's okay. It'll happen again. Just keep walking. There's, there's a pattern here, okay? We go from strength to strength. And if that's not enough, look to the gospel. In fact, look to where God looks always at his very right hand, where your innocence sits next to him, lives and pleads for you always. And if you do that, you will know his love, you will know his acceptance, and you'll know his protection. And that's why verse 12 says, blessed is the one who trusts in him. Look, you're not going to feel it. 
It's not always going to make sense. It's not always going to add up. But do you trust? Do you trust that the nearness of God is worth it? Do you trust that the, the good life is the life that is lived in God's presence? I hope you do. Let's pray. <clears throat> oh Lord, we thank you that we have been restored to a father-child relationship which we were created for. Our sin and the sin of others have suffocated that, Lord. We long for the transcendent and we have not been able to tap into the transcendent on our own. We never could, we never would, so you came to us. We thank you, Jesus, that we can have the nearness of your Father. Have, we can experience what you experience now, in, in little bits here and now, and certainly forever and ever. Think about that. How amazing is that, that the, the, the life and the love that the Son experiences from eternity past, present, and future is what we are invited into right here, right now, and forever and ever in glory. God, I pray if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you yet, that today would be the day they do that. Today would be the way that they are persuaded that is worth it and they are trustworthy and they never, never look back. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.